Well, we've been talking about Jonathan and David. I've got uh, eight books on my desk on Jonathan or David, mostly on David. Jonathan doesn't get his fair share of the press. But in all those books, I haven't found a single chapter that focuses on what we're going to talk about today. So y'all pray for the pastor. He's going out on a limb. Will you do that? But I think it's an important thing that we talk about. You know, I, I went to a wedding this, this weekend. Adam Dugdale was married yesterday. Beautiful little service over here at the Catholic Church. And uh, at that wedding, like at all weddings, the bride and the groom were center stage. They were cutting covenant with one another. Great act of loyalty. Bowing themselves to one another in the sight of their God. We've talked about covenant stuff like that. But right behind the groom, and on the other side of the, uh, the bride as well, the maid of honor, th- there was someone standing up with them. All the rest of us sat down. I mean, even in the Catholic church, we had to sit down and stand up. You know, but but we, we were all sitting down. But the priest made absolutely certain that those that were in the wedding party were not to sit down. They were to stand up with and, you know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of an uh, undefined thing, isn't it? What, once this relationship is intact, the husband and the wife, how exactly does the best man fit in now? You understand what I'm saying? W- what happens going forward from that? Is the best man standing up with the groom simply as a testimony to the past? This has been my best friend up until now, but now I'm married. Does the bachelor party somehow dissolve the friendships that are standing up with you at that moment? And I I would argue this morning, let me just tell you where we're going, that I would argue that they do not. In fact, I would say that the best man standing up with the groom at that time at the wedding is saying, I especially stand with you now. If you ever needed my strength, if you ever needed me in that, your corner, it's going to be in encouraging you to love well this mysterious thing called a bride. Right? This mysterious one. She will challenge you. She will, she, she will challenge you to be holier than you've ever been. She will expose every selfish cell in your body. You you can't hide from her. She'll observe it all. She'll hold you accountable to it all. Are you sure you're ready for this? I'll just hand him the ring. (laughs) But but, but I stand up. I, I think that we need to redefine the roles of friendship even after we're married. And, uh, I think in, in the story of Jonathan and David are some clues, not, not conclusive uh, arguments, I don't think, but some clues as to how we should do that. How, it, it, to live like kings, well, it doesn't show up there, but to live like kings, we have loyalties to balance. That's what the title of this is. Second Samuel 1, 26-27 is a, uh, an interesting little read. Let me uh, turn there, if you want to turn there w- with me. Second Samuel. 
1. This is from uh, David's song, his, his dirge, his, his uh, requiem over, over Jonathan after Jonathan has been killed in battle with his father. And at the end of, of that song, uh, it ends with this final verse. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been more pleasant to me. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. How have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? He says this over Jonathan. And I, I don't know about you, but that, that raises a big question for me. How, how is it that that David, even now that he's married, values Jonathan's love even more than than the love of women. Uh, And I I don't know that it couldn't have been translated even more than the love of wives. You know, there's a curious thing about studying biblical characters. We can learn both from the triumphs of their lives and the tragedies of their lives. David was not God's man in every way. In some ways, he models for us how to follow after God with all your heart. And in other ways, he models specifically how not to. Right? He's a strange mix. He's human like all of us. Frail. And if, if, if we're to learn God's way from any men, we will always have to pick out the bones, so to speak. How, how do we make sense of this? How do, how do you both serve as a king in your home, but have friends that are still confidants in this world? Uh, the, the next point is when eight is not enough. Do you remember that little show? Some of you don't even know that clever little thing the pastor just did there. You have no idea. what Eight is Enough was an old TV show. Uh, when eight is not enough, do you realize that, that David actually had eight wives? Not an example to follow, my friends. Okay, let me, let me just say that up front. But he did. He, he had eight wives. Let me find that in uh, my notes here. He, he had... First wife was, uh, was Michael, and then Ahinoam, and then Abigail, and then Makkah, and then Haggith, and then Abital, and then Igla, and all these are listed there in 1 Samuel 25, 39 through 44. And if that wasn't enough, seven wives, he then went for an eighth with Bathsheba. Eight wives. What could be driving a man... To have eight wives. It, it, it could have been, I think, that from the very beginning, David had a soul wound deep within him. His father had called him a hakatan, a worthless one. And it's often our, our, our wounds go seeking their, their, their resolution somewhere. And a point of this message is this morning, too often we look to our spouse to be the resolution of all of our wounds. Now, to do that is to put them not in the place of being a good husband or wife. It's to put them in the place of God. 
And my friends, you might have a good husband and a good wife, but any good husband and a good wife makes a lousy God. Okay? There's a a balance to be struck here. Uh, Between the priority of a covenant of marriage, but the collaboration of covenants with deep and true friends that supports you in your covenant with your spouse. Uh, when eight is not enough, uh, you, you can read about those, those many wives and, and, that, and, and there are stories behind each of them. And I'll be tempted later on to uh, run headlong into what we can learn from David's choices in wives. Micah was a bad one. Abigail was a great one. I could make a whole sermon just out of that. But, and I may have to say a little bit about it. Uh, I, have, I have some people in the audience, I'm still concerned that they make good decisions about these things. You understand? Uh, but Stu Weber, Stu Weber in his book, The Pillars of Manhood, uh, warns men against uh, this idea of isolating ourselves uh, in, in our marriages. Yes, they're to be a priority. But he says this. Now, he's talking about the value of friendship. Four pillars in, in manhood as he understood it. A king to provide, a warrior to protect, a mentor to teach. And then this final pillar is a little slippery, he says. A, a friend to connect. He says, uh, for some internalized reason, we men find it difficult to accept this final pillar of being a friend and having a a, a, a close confidant in a friend. Most of us are happy to step into the responsibilities of a king or a warrior. We might struggle with the mentor pillar, but deep down, that makes sense to us too. Men are supposed to know how to work, how to make things work. And that too represents strength and power and authority. We get that. But this friend thing, we seem to hold back, reluctant to take the plunge. That last foundational post of manhood seems a little questionable. Are we reluctant because the friend pillar is brushed with touches of the emotional? He says emotion. Touch with emotion, not emotionalism. Emotion. Is is it because personal connection requires a measure of vulnerability from, from us? Why do we seem to resist and dislike getting in touch with our emotions and perhaps even exposing them to others? That tendency towards rock ribbed, self sufficient isolation is a killing disease among men. It's as common as prostate cancer, and every bit is destructive. We know that I, uh, you know that I hate, he says, you know what I hate more than anything else? Alone. That's what I hate. Separation, isolation. Alone is hell, and alone is dangerous. I wasn't made for it, neither were you. The Creator said it from the get-go. It is not good for man to be alone. And as we've already noted, while the obvious and immediate context of that verse is marriage, I believe it is foundational statement of comprehensive principle to be found throughout all Scripture, together is better. We were made as a friend for a friend. I will be with you. When God, in a moment of overwhelming intimacy, introduced himself by name to his despairing but chosen people, the Bible captures it in the vocabulary of friendship. I have come down to deliver and to bring you up. I 
will be with you. That sealed it. They had a friend in God. And when Jesus had finished his sacrificial work, uh, just before he ascended to uh, prepare a place for his people to join him at the table forever, he commissioned his disciples in the vocabulary of friendship, saying, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Isolation. As stout as prostate cancer. Well, well said. Well said. Isolation is deadly. And, and God is meant for, for marriage to be, I think, a, a covenant that takes priority in our lives for sure. If we're married. Uh, and if we're not married, uh, there's a place for singleness and the gospel of God. You, you understand, some people treat marriage like it's the goal of the Christian life. And God does empower our marriages. But God does not intend for the aim of our lives to be a human relationship. Jesus didn't come just to reconcile us to one another. He came primarily to reconcile us to God. And even our temporary marriages in this world are only a reflection of that marriage, which is the goal and the aim of our salvation. Are you with me? So that, so that single persons and their devotion to God can be as much a sign in the fact that they are modeling God's sufficiency in their life as we are as married people modeling the dynamics of a mutually submissive relationship modeling God. Neither of those are uh, falling short of God's aim and God's purposes in our individual lives, we, we for too long have idolatrized marriage, I think. Hi, let, me, let me just ask you. If you were to compare how many times you've prayed for Mr. and Mrs. Wright to how many times you've prayed to be righteous... You with me? Uh, this message isn't going to be popular with everybody. But I, but I think it's a truth that's undermining this, this romantic notion of taking marriage and making it the aim and the end all of life puts far too much pressure on that institution for which it was never meant to deliver. Right? We were meant to be partners with one another, not gods to one another. And uh, I think there's, there's a careful balance in both prioritizing your marriage while not, guys, isolating yourselves from friends that hold you accountable, that are the iron sharpening iron in your life so that you can be all the husband you were called to be even for your wife. Your wife can be many things for you, fellas. But she, unlike other men, cannot call the man of God out in you. That's mano de mano. That, 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 that takes man to man kind of stuff. 
And, and I've seen that in action. When, when a husband was not holding up his end of the bargain in a marriage, and a couple of guys took him out to lunch. I remember this years ago in this church, and, and we took a friend out, not because we wanted to dink on him, and not because we wanted to put him down, but because we loved him so much, we knew he could be more than what he was being. There's times in our lives where, even after we're married, we need the strength of a Jonathan in our life. Someone who loves us as they love themselves. Someone who speaks the truth to us in love. Someone who reminds us who we are and whose we are. Whose we are. We need both of these relationships in our life if we're going to live like kings. And David failed almost as a king in the outer world because he failed, first of all, as a king in his own home. And his failure as a king in his own home, I think, was largely due to the fact that he was alone. He was alone that night when he went up on the palace roof and saw Bathsheba as a temptation he could not resist. I wonder how different that story might have gone if the next morning Jonathan had seen the messengers go to Uriah's house and bring Bathsheba back to the palace. You don't think Jonathan would have been in David's face? You think it it would have taken the years that it took for, for Nathan to finally walk in, if, if David had at that time still been in relationship with Jonathan? I'm getting ahead of myself. I say let iron sharpen iron. And women and men, especially in marriages, we've learned from studying the Bible about marriages that, that men speak in a language of respect. That's our native tongue. We get that. You know, that, that's, that's understood. Fellows can pick up on respect vibes with the way someone looks at them, right? And many times their wives don't even know that they're looking at them that way. Because they don't have a respect radar at the same sensitivity level that a man has one. Women, on the other hand, ha- have a radar for love that... M- boggles the minds of men. This idea of connectedness and, and kindness and, and all that kinds of stuff. A woman gets offended and, and, and uh, troubles come in a relationship and what does she do? She pursues him. Why? Because she wants love. She wants to be connected. Well, if we're having an argument and you're coming at me, all I know to do is to respect this situation and turn and walk the other way. I'm not going to go fist to cuffs with you like I would with one of my buddies if he ever said anything like that to me. Do you understand? And, and, and so from the very get-go, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a mess where, where she's trying to get connected and he's going, I'm not going to have anything to do with that. I'm going to go out in the garage and work on the car. Unless someone's out there working on the car with him. It says, hey dude, 
Get over yourself. I know you just got your ego wounded. But man up. Go back in there and love that woman. Do you understand what I'm saying? There are times when a woman's been hurt because she's not been loved well. And the only kind of person that understands that wound well is going to be another woman who speaks that language. Ladies, you need these friends too. And guys, when we're disrespected, nobody's going to understand the depth of that wound because we don't show it. Somebody disrespects me could have torn me to pieces. I ain't going to show it. Why? Because that would show weakness. We don't do that. You know? The bully in the school, he threatened our lives. What did we do? Poker face, man. I'm not scared. Right? That's the language of respect. That, that, that's what's going on in a guy's head. But, but, but no one's going to understand the depth of your wound when you're disrespected. And she may not have even meant it, is my point. But like another guy. But once the empathy has happened... Then does iron sharpen iron and strengthen that one to come back to that relationship and give it your best all over again? Do you have friends like that? If, you're don't, if you don't, then it's as if your marriage ceremony didn't have anyone standing up with you. I'm so off my notes, it's scary. Uh, can we mine some gold then from David's life? How, how does he show us? What does his life teach us both in, both in its gaps and, and, and in, its, uh, in its goodness uh, about how to balance well these essential relationships in our lives? Well, first of all, let me just say that, you know, we can't overlook the fact, I think, that, that David was a polygamist. Nowhere is that uh, prescribed in Scripture, though the Scripture is honest about those situations in which it happened. In fact, the, the general rubric, the principle that arises from the Scripture is uh, faithfulness, both in marriage and chastity and in, in, in singleness, uh, and how often do the cultural norms of the day differ from that best practice? In those days, polygamy was a culturally accepted thing, especially among kings. Why kings would even use marriage as a way of making political alliances, and David did that as well. His wife, Makah, was, was a, uh, a daughter of the king of Geshur. So, so marriages had many purposes in, in those days, and many of them were mispurposes based on the scriptural thing. And, and we have the same thing today. You show, show me in the Bible dating. And yet we, we practice this as if it was a God-given thing. Serial relationships. There, there's plenty of ways that that our culture tends to drag us into its practices while the, the, the principles of Scripture are always there to guide us towards what's best, right? I don't think there's any way to defend the fact that David made some mistakes 
in terms of his marriage choices. I think it could be argued that he made at least seven mistakes. But I also think David was driven by that need for affirmation and respect that he never got in his own home. And you've seen this happen in our culture, haven't you? Where, where a man without a sense of security about himself becomes one that chases after women as if they're trophies that... that that somehow satisfy his need for uh, affirmation, for being somebody. The term trophy wife comes from that very abuse, right? David, David made some mistakes. He made some good choices as wives. I, I think Abigail was a keeper. But the sad thing is, by 2 Samuel 11, when he's king and he's conquered, it says in 2 Samuel 11 that when kings would go out to battle, David stayed home at the palace. And when he stayed home at the palace, he was sleeping one night and he was alone. How is that possible? You've got a wife for every day of the week. And he's alone. Friends, I I think we've often overlooked that maybe the greatest aloneness is when you're isolated in a difficult and troubled marriage and have no one standing with you in it. You want to talk alone? That's alone. David was alone didn't justify what he did, but it set him up for it. I wish Jonathan could have been there for him, but he wasn't. He was alone. Jonathan was gone. He was dead. There was no one that replaced Jonathan in David's relationships. He was close to Joab, but Joab was not a Jonathan. Joab was just a general in his army. Joab was a yes man. Jonathan's aren't yes men. They're speak the truth and love men. David had nobody like that in his life. And so God sends him such a friend. You, you know the story of Bathsheba. I, I won't recall m- much of it. David, David sees Bathsheba, decides that she's the next wife for him. He, he then has her come to the palace uh, they sleep together that night. Uh, she gets pregnant. He, he tries to, to, to cover it up. He brings Uriah, her husband, home from the war front where he's fighting. And, and he has Uriah stop by the, the, the palace. And then he sends him home to his house, hoping that he would be like most soldiers, home with his wife then to, to reunite with her. And that would cover up the pregnancy. But but that doesn't happen. Uriah is a man of such integrity that he tells David as he sleeps on the steps of the palace that night, how can I go home and enjoy the pleasures and, 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 of, of being with my wife when my brothers in arms are still in battle? There's no way I'm going to go home like that. It's been a long time since David 
had been shoulder to shoulder or face to face with that kind of manhood. But David was hiding in his own shame at this point. Rather than admitting anything to Uriah and, and taking the lumps that would come with it, he continues to conceal it. He tells Joab to take him into battle and put him at the place that the fighting is the fiercest. And, and there, once he's engaged in battle, to have all the valiant warriors uh, retreat from him so that he's left alone there to be taken out by, by the Ammonites, I think it was. And do you understand what happens with that? David has become what he despised in Saul. Saul had the same plans for David. Let David go fight the Philistines. Bring me proof that you've wiped out a hundred Philistines and you can have my daughter, Michael. Remember that? Thinking that he would never be the husband of his daughter, Michael, but that David would go to his death fighting the Philistines. And now David's turned around and played the same despicable trick on Uriah. Uriah dies. And David, David in his kingly magnanimity, is that a word? In his bigness as a king, he decides to have compassion on the poor widow of Uriah and bring Bathsheba into the palace. And all the people as she was taken to the palace said, oh, King David, he's a man. No, he's a worm. He's a worm, and, and no one was there to tell him. He, he needed a friend like Jonathan, and he didn't have one. So what did God do? God sent him a friend like Jonathan. Strangely enough, his name, minus the Joe, is Jonathan. He sends him Nathan. Oh, I just thought that was kind of curious. No Jonathan, so send him Nathan. And Nathan seems to have respect for the king and care for the king. And he seems to, to love the king and wants what's best for the king. He approaches him with respect. He tells him this little story about, about a sheep, two, two owners of sheep. One, one had a thousand on the hills. He was a very rich man. And the other one only had this one little sheep, and it was more like a pet. He, his kids knew it by name, and he, he would hold it to his bosom at night. It, it, it was his, his one little sheep. And the rich man has a friend come, and when his friend comes into town, he must kill a calf in order that they may feast. And rather than taking one of his many, he rather takes the one lamb of the other shepherd. And David, as a former shepherd, sees the injustice in that. And before he realizes it, he's already pronounced sentence on his own sin. Death to this man. Who could do such a thing? Nathan, tell me, who is the man that has done something like this? And Nathan turns to him. And as a man risking his own life to tell the truth to his king, he says, you're the man. You are the man. And he tells David the rest of the story that God has made clear to Nathan. Because no matter how David hid it from the people, God knew what was going on all along. Nathan pours out the whole story, and, and David, to his credit, owns it, confesses it, and falls in repentance to his knees. And immediately, immediately there's grace. Immediately, Nathan says, and God says, you shall not die. But there are consequences for what you've done. 
you've shamed the name of God publicly. You were a man after God's own heart. Is this what a man after God's own heart does? Really? You were a king to these people. And in the way it was laid out, you would be an example to the people of what it means to follow God. And if you and they followed God together, then Israel would be blessed. That was the deal that God made with them when they said, give us a king. Remember that? David has failed as a king. And and the repercussions of this will not stop here. It'll create rivalry in his own family. Can you imagine? I mean, if there weren't seeds for this already, he had had, uh, six sons by six different wives, and and then Solomon on top of that. Do you see the drama that's getting set up here? He's got a different son... One son by every one of his wives except Michael. (laughs) What an idiot. Oh my gosh. But isn't that what we do? We make mistakes following our own desires. From that rivalry comes rape. What could David say about that? Even his own household knew of Bathsheba. And after after rivalry and rape, then 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 comes uh, revolt. Absalom would make himself the king instead of David. One thing after another plagues the house of David. The sword, as it says in the Scripture, will never depart from his house. Even the child that he is having with Bathsheba dies after seven days. And Solomon is actually the second son born to David and Bathsheba. It becomes a soap opera of tragedy in David's life. But men in isolation have a big record of stupidity. Now I can say that as a man. If I was a woman preaching right now, that would have probably offended a lot of people. But, but, but I, in isolation, left to ourselves, pinned down with, with our own desires and conflicts and wounds, We often become people set on satisfying ourselves rather than cross-bearers, rather than those as kings and as warriors and as friends and as mentors that will lay down their lives for those in our homes. Let me wrap this up. I think there are several things, perhaps, that we can take away from this part of the story. 
One might be a nugget from mind from uh, the gold of David's gaps. One of those might be for the romantics among us. Perhaps in your marriage, you've been expecting more than is fair of a good and well-intentioned spouse. Maybe you've been expecting of them to be the meter of all your desires. And folks, that's not going to happen until glory when we get to heaven and we become the bride of Christ. But our relationship here can be a a projection in this world of, of what's to come for us. But if we've romanticized our own marriages to the point that we've isolated ourselves from other healthy relationships, if that somehow kept us from a band of brothers, then perhaps we've overemphasized the role of that connection in our lives. Or, or, or maybe there's a nugget for the lonely as well. Maybe you're a person who has isolated yourself that way and, and, and yours is not just to turn from looking for the satisfactions of your life from your spouse, but look for the satisfactions of your life from God. That's what the romantic needs to do, to turn from the human to the divine. Maybe we're lonely. Maybe we are isolated. Well, my friends, you need a Jonathan. And to have a friendship like that, you've got to offer a friendship like that. You've got to build a friendship like that. You've got to approach another man whom you respect and say, I need a friend like you. Would you in my life speak the truth to me in love? I need a friend like you in my life. Or or maybe we've been misbefriended. Many of us may have confidants already. But when we go to them and they see us hurting, uh, perhaps in our marriage relationship or as a single person, we, we, we go to them and they tell us that the, the thing that will satisfy all our desires is just, just get married. Well, perhaps, friend, you need a new friend. If you go to your friends and they empathize with you and then they turn on that relationship and tear it apart and tell you you ought to leave, that, that, that you deserve better than this, that that person isn't living up to their role, and they don't say, tell you anything about what your responsibility is in that relationship first, who needs a friend like that? I've told you about my friend who signs all his letters, still does, fire and wind, right? Cheryl may not know this, and, uh, but he's been that kind of friend for me all these years. He, he was at my wedding, and I was in his. And he prays for me every day. I wish I was as good a friend to him. He prays for me every day, and every day part of his prayer is to bless Cheryl and for me to be the man that God has called me to be because God has entrusted his daughter to my keeping.
Friends like that don't destroy marriages. They build them. They reinforce them. They're worthy of the title, best man. And so I ask you, maybe yours is, is one that needs to refriend, to find a friend that's not just someone you can get along with and not just someone you have a hobby in common, but someone who is truly one so dedicated to the Lord that they will pull for the Lord's priorities in your life with you. Not just your marriage, but all sorts of things, right? That they will be that kind of friend. Maybe you've been misbefriended. Or, or, or maybe you've been a spouse that for fear that your hubby might find a band of brothers who are not supportive of the priority relationship in his life, you, you've been resistant. And maybe he's chosen poorly. Maybe he's misbefriended some yahoos in his life that aren't helping him live up to the man he's been called to be, Right? But if, if you'll release and if you'll encourage your spouse, your wife, your husband to find these kinds of friends, that release does not in any way dis- diminish your, your marriage. What it actually does is it reinforces it, right? Maybe as a spouse, you can say to your spouse, no, with those guys, <laughs> I want you to go play your golf game. With those guys, you need to do breakfast. No, no, with those fellas, go hunting. Because in doing so, you'll strengthen them for the priorities in their own life. So maybe there's ways to apply this message in in, in different ways in, in all of our lives. But if we become that kind of friend, I think we strengthen us men to be kings in our homes. And if we're kings in our homes... We're God's kings. That's the front lines. And if David had learned to be a king there, how different his story would have been. If Jonathan had not been absent at his side, how different would it have been? God, give us strength to be men who lay down our lives, kings that provide, friends that connect, mentors that teach, warriors that protect. Lord, strengthen us. Help us to follow this word to obey with a witness to give, with a work to do, with a woman to love. Lord, help us stand up as men and be the men you've called us to be and help us do it shoulder to shoulder with one another. Stu Weber is a man in anyone's measure. He's a former Green Beret, fought in Vietnam. He's a man's man and he's God's man. But he struggled a bit with this idea of being connected to others. But with his sons, too much was at stake. 
over the years, the Lord has taught him how to develop these relationships. And thankfully, he had learned a little bit when his freshman came home, his freshman son came home from college. And his son just wasn't himself. He had been in a funk all week. He hadn't done much. He'd mostly just stayed in his room and stayed in the bed. And his dad knew he had to get him up and get him engaged in life somehow. His dad was cleaning out the garage. And he said, son, just come help me. And soon things were as they used to be. Father and son, side by side, doing a project together. But his father decided to be a king. He turned to his son and he said, son, what's wrong? You're just not yourself. Son, what's going on? And his son kind of slumped as he put down the box that he had in his hands. And with his back to him, he shook his head and he said, dad, I don't know. I don't know. That's what's wrong. And then he screamed, I don't know. All all my other friends seem to have known from the time they were five what they were supposed to do. They've picked their majors. They're on some kind of track. They're they're making progress somewhere. Dad, I'm clueless. I I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't even know what classes I'm supposed to take next semester. I don't know. And I've been asking God. and He's not speaking. It's just silence from heaven. What does that mean? Doesn't God care? What am I supposed to do with my life? What classes am I supposed to take next semester? I'm spinning my wheels. I'm absolutely lost. Dad, I don't know. That's what's wrong. Stu Weber looked at his son, man to man. And he said, son, I don't know either. But you can take this to the bank. Until you come to know, I will be with you. And he took a step towards his son with his arms outstretched. And his son took a step towards him. And they fell into each other's arms. And he felt strength going into his son and strength from his son. As in that embrace, they held one another there. They hadn't shaved that morning. Their beards interlocked with one another. Stu said he felt hot hot tears going down the back of his neck and then realized his tears were dropping on his son's neck and they sat there in that eternal moment. And he had become the friend his son needed. Men, we need other men like that in our lives. Men that are wrapped up in those four cords and those four pillars. They're a king. They're a warrior. They're a mentor. They're a friend. They've got it all going on for God and we can hang on to them and they can hang on to us and we know they're like a steel cable. They will not break. They will be at our side. And when we don't have Jonathans like that in our life, something about us grows weak, grows weary, and starts to wander. Men, let us be friends like that for one another. Amen? Lord Jesus, we ask that 
you would teach us this kind of full sinewed manhood that we might be these kinds of friends for one another fire and wind pulling for one another lifting each other up pointing us back to the biggest commitments in our lives and seeing that we don't fail you and we don't fail them Lord Jesus let us know how we're to respond to this message today We pray that as we resolve to be friends with one another in this place, that as we go to the missions banquet, you will make us friends of those that we haven't even met. Give us hearts for others like your great heart. May the greatest among us be the one with the heart for all, a servant's heart. We pray that your love, that Jesus will be a shining light because we support your ministry wherever these funds go. Be with us, Lord God. And so live within us that come what may, we can be with each other, there for one another, pulling each other through. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Let's stand.